Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I am a failure. I have failed after repeated attempts to get Dr. Emily on our podcast. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about Emily Nagoski, who wrote several books. That's right. Okay. Not Dr. Emily Nagoski. Not the radio not call the, <laughs> Not the sex with Emily. Sure say, I, she definitely wouldn't want to be on our um, I, I don't. I've not tried to contact her. But, yeah, let's not. But Dr. Emily Nagoski is, you and I are huge fans. We've taught, I'm a huge fan. You're a fan. Mm-hmm. You you are less of a fan because you are just less interested in talking about sex and intimacy than I am. But I did like the book that she wrote with her sister. I, I was a huge fan of that called What's Burnout. Burnout, right. We actually read that as a church staff book and that's how I was introduced to is that where her. you get the when you talk about completing the sec the, the stress, stress cycle? cycle? Yeah, because you know, I mean, it was it was very uh, on point with the timing. I mean, with the recovery, and we were reading this book, and it was talking about completing the stress cycle, which goes into a lot of different parts of people's lives. But it was really poignant. Well, I was hoping to get Dr. Emily on the podcast to talk about that book, perhaps, but also her. I think her first book, her first big book, her bestseller, Come As You Are, it's called. And um, we actually had some back and forth, got so far as trying to pick a date. And then she decided that she, as well, I was working through her agent, but her agent said that she decided that the intersection of addiction recovery with intimacy and sex issues is where she was uncomfortable because while she's definitely an expert on all things sexuality, she is not um, an expert on addiction. And so I think that is what uh, made the ultimate decision that she didn't want to be on the podcast. But hey, whether she's here or not, we're going to talk about her book. We're going to do a little bit of a book review today. Book review. Book review and talk about the ways in which her book is applicable uh, in the area of alcohol, re- alcoholic relationship recovery. So Dr. Nagoski is a PhD uh, in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University, my undergraduate alma mater. So very proud that Dr. Nagoski and I are both Hoosiers. Um, and she did a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute which is oh, which located, is, which is at IU. <laughs> that you had no idea. Yeah, you well, were there. and and That's what right. I've learned in recent years is that the sexual health clinic at the Kinsey Institute. This is a world-renowned sexual health research facility. Like this is top of the charts um, as far as the things that they that have come out of the Kinsey Institute and how it is viewed around the world. So mm-hmm. I was there for four years trying to have sex, and I had no idea that. <laughs> That Kinsey was... It was just on campus. Yeah. Who knew? They should have studied you. Who knew? But her book is titled Come As You Are. And, um, you know, although Dr. Emily was not, uh, not at this point anyway, willing to come on the podcast, I have read some papers from and interacted with Dr. Kristen Mark, uh, who went to grad school with Dr. Nagoski. And she is a professor of sexual health at the University of Minnesota. And I'm thinking, as I'm getting to know Dr. Mark, maybe I'll try to see if she'll come on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, another Hoosier. So maybe I can work that angle. Yeah. She went to Indiana as well. So who knows? Um, but we'll, we'll try to, to get Dr. Mark on the podcast in a future episode. For today, before we dive into the book... And talk about how it is applicable in alcoholic relationships and recovery. As always, we're going to take a listener question, Sherry. Sound good? Yeah. Now, I went through all the listener questions we've received. And, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to exaggerate it and make it sound like it's thousands. (laughs) It took you days. But we... (laughs) It didn't take days. 
But we have received quite a few, and none of them, I mean, none of them specifically act asked about sex and intimacy, which I obviously, if, you know, I don't know if listeners have noticed this, but I try to pair the listener question with the topic that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode, um, and I could find nothing that would be good about to tie in. And I think that says a lot about how private sex and intimacy issues are to people. I mean, we did a listener question a couple of months ago that was about bedwetting. I mean, how could there be anything more personal and secret than an alcoholic that's struggling with bedwetting? I mean, that's a shameful... It shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't it happens, be. But I mean, it's part... It's a, it's a complication of alcoholism, of addiction. But it certainly is the kind of thing that would bring... Bring shame to a person. Well, I kind of think that people don't... It's not so much that they want to not talk about it or they can't... It's that <coughs> that's not even a consideration at this point. If you are dealing with an alcoholic and early recovery or even long-term recovery, I mean, you and I didn't start really working on this stuff until many years into your sobriety and after I had my own recovery. So I don't think it's something that people are even thinking I mean, we can barely even tolerate the addict, let alone want to think about being vulnerable and having intimate moments. Most of us. Now, some people do still have that desire and want to um, continue having a healthy sexual relationship and they can maybe compartmentalize and, you know, like this is their behavior when and this is their behavior when we're in bed. But, that's it. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to me about sex when you were in early addiction. Fuck no. When I was in addiction drink, or early yeah, recovery, yeah, early yeah. recovery. So no, I could, I, I wouldn't want to go there. I think, I think that's a really valid point. Um, you, you know, uh, a, a lot of the people that we talk with, that we share with, I've been under the kind of belief that their willingness to share details, the line gets drawn at the bedroom door. But you make a really good point. And it actually, it's something that when we think about this whole question that we received a while back about bedwetting, um, that, that's a very personal, very secretive, can bring shame to people kind of a thing. But that's something that's happening in the real world during addiction, right? So if sex and intimacy is completely dried up, and like you said, basically that it's off the radar screen, at least for the loved one, in an addiction relationship, the bedwetting's not off the radar screen because I'm rolling over into it. It's happening, you know, on a consistent basis, and that's not something you can compartmentalize or think about later. So it's, I think you make a really good point. It's not just whether it's too shameful or too taboo to talk about. It's whether it's even something you're thinking about. Well, or and not. I felt like it, I mean, for you, there had always been this underlying current of desire, rejection, um, low self-esteem, sexual, like our sexual relationship means that we were bonded. You know, like you had it all tied together. Yes. And I'm sure that there is in a healthy relationship. We were in an unhealthy relationship. You didn't see it. So you didn't, so you held it at a higher level of importance than I did because I just wanted to get through the day. I think so. that's another really good point because Intimacy, I mean, this is important stuff. Um, having a healthy sexual relationship, having feeling good about your yourself sexually does lead to self-esteem and overall health well-being. It's not just about sexual well-being. It's about your overall health well-being. Those things all tie together. It's been scientifically proven. But when you're in the throes of addiction, these aren't the kinds of things that you're thinking about. And it's not at the top of the list of things that need to be fixed, right? Mm -hmm. Stopping the addiction needs to be fixed before. So you're you're right. Um, I had kind of the concept that sex and intimacy, this is an important part of marriage and it can't just be brushed under the rug. But I just had kind of the order wrong. Like let's let's work on this as opposed to dealing mm -hmm. with the addiction when the addiction needs to be. Well, I mean, we've said it. Probably a thousand times by this point. Sobriety doesn't fix anything. It just kind of rips off the band-aid and allows us to do the work on all the wounds that are below. So, um, 
so yeah, that's that's a you know a really excellent point that you make. So I didn't find a question that was specifically directly about sex and intimacy, but I did find one that was in follow up. So rather than being a question, you know, hey Sherry and Matt, would you please address this on your podcast? This was a follow up question that we got from a listener to our episode 174 from a few months ago. The title of that episode was Reconciling the Joys of Alcohol. And the points we were trying to make in that episode is that sometimes it's hard for the drinker or the spouse of the drinker because you've got these memories that involved alcohol that were really great. I have them, you have them. And so saying sobriety is a requirement for a successful marriage and a successful independent life going forward is hard to reconcile when you do have memories where alcohol was a part and it was good. Now, the memories where alcohol was a part and it was bad far, far, far outweigh those goods, certainly in our case, and I think in most people's case who have, I mean, mean, you might even be able to stretch and say in all cases where addiction is present, there are far more bad memories than good. But there are some good ones, and you and I spent an hour talking about them and kind of reconciling the need for sobriety when there are good memories that include alcohol. And uh, the email that we received talked about the fact that all of my fond memories that I shared on that podcast, fond memories of alcohol that involved you, Sherry, also culminated in sex. And I talked about, oh, do you remember that night in Miami when we had that that wild experience? And Yes. And so the question that I'm kind of parsing from this email that we received from a listener is do you tend to think of your partner as a sexual partner first and foremost and think of the other people in your life for other needs like friendship? So that question is obviously directed to me, but I think we both should take a shot at answering it. The first thing I would say is no, emphatically no. And that's not defensive and defiant because I don't want to be thought of as a sexual creature. The fact is I look to you, Sherry, for so many connection points. And I think what I've learned as we have explored our relationship and we talk about it on the podcast is that I look to you for connection points probably way more so than you look to me. I mean, I I still, the word kind of glom on pops into my head. I still kind of glom on to you for a lot of things and you're grinning over there. So I think that means you agree. Barnacle is what popped into my mind. (laughs) Barnacle, yeah. So it's way for for me that the things I get from you from our relationship are way, way, way more than sex. And I think you get some of those things elsewhere. Is that fair? Do you feel like you have other connections besides me where you get a lot of juju? Yeah, I do. I have friends or people that I connect with in different groups. And I actually, you know, um, I know it seems silly, but I'm also, I feel like I'm very self-fulfilling in some ways. Yes. Like I kind of enjoy my own company sometimes. Yeah. More than others. And um, so I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I mean, I don't think that that's very surprising to you though. No. I mean, uh, because it would have been five years ago. Yeah, you would have been, yeah. I would have been you, like, I'm the one jealous. who knows yeah. all the people and yeah, talks you, to all the people. Like recently I had said, oh, I just needed to go and talk to my friend and she made me feel so much better. And you're like, you know, five years ago you would have probably ranted and raved and saying, you talk to me about the same stuff, but, you know, I didn't make you feel better, blah, blah, you know. I would have felt really jealous. And, and maybe you wouldn't have even verbalized it. You would have just pouted around and sulked around. And if you were drinking, that would have been a huge binge. No, no. I would have found a movie quote or a Bible quote or something to say, you know, I am your partner. You're supposed to look to me for those things. Mm -hmm. And you're not supposed to go outside the marriage for those things. I would have found, you know, some epiphany that some bloviating Something that you can just like verbal, you can just wrap it around however you and manipulate it to what you want it to say. And then I would have beat you down with it. And so that you would have felt guilty you about talking to your friend. You wouldn't have beat me with friend. the Bible or the cover of the case no, the of words the movie, but the, the words, yeah. 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 Uh, so, I, I don't think, but I don't think that that's, I, I do want to go back to the question was, I know the question was to you, but I did for a long time feel like I was really only there for sexual pleasure from you. I knew you 
it had a lot of other needs in me, but that was something that was a very hurtful pain point was I just said, I feel like I'm just, you know, here for your pleasure. My body is yours. And I, and I take offense to when you say things like, um, you would jokingly say things like, oh, those boobs are mine or whatever. I would take offense to it because I felt like I was being owned and it felt very sort of, um, uh, I don't know, like old fashioned, patriarchal. Yeah. Like I'm your property. You know, like, very ancient times, very, you know, men. When it was really bad, you would say something even more crude. You would say, you just feel like you are holes to me. Yeah, an orifice of some sort, so, yeah. And that, um, that was always a blow. You didn't say it a lot, but on the occasions when you would say that, that was a huge blow, because that is never how I thought of you. I... Yes, I wanted sex more than you did. I was insistent about that. I was annoying about that. But for me, that was a gateway to connection, to real, you know, emotional, intimate connection, which, and we'll talk more about this as we get deeper into the topics of the podcast, but that's, it was just patently impossible Mm -hmm. to create the kind of intimacy that I wanted to the way I was going about it while I was in active addiction, but I wanted it anyway. And you had absolutely no interest in it at that point. I, I want to share a quote from Esther Perel, who I think a lot of our listeners will probably know, but she's a Belgian-American psychotherapist who's famous for her work on human relationships, and I am a huge fan of hers, and she talks about intimacy and desire in long-term relationships and says that that's all about reconciling the human need for trust and safety with the human need for adventure and excitement. And so in order for us to continue to desire each other and to be aroused by each other and to want to have a connection, a physical connection and an emotional connection, we have to both trust each other and feel safe with each other, which that's obvious. I think that's, that's, the, that's the obvious half of what she's saying. But the other thing she says is we have to trust each other enough to allow each other to go out and have adventures and have excitement with other people. And so I think back to some specific examples in my active addiction when I was jealous and I hated it when you would go out and have fun without me. Is that how it felt being you? Like if if you if you wanted to go out and do stuff with your friends, um, I wasn't, you know, I was I was I, I was smart and mature enough, just barely smart and mature enough to not say things like, you shouldn't go out with your girlfriends because you should be home with me. But I would be like, where are you? What are you doing? When are you coming home? Yeah, like you would encourage it in a way. Like when we first moved to Denver, the church that we um, first started attending had a mom's group. And, you know, um, I had met a few people with some kid interactions, you know, some kids stuff. But this was going to be our church community and so I wanted to develop deeper relationships with them and then every once in a while we would go out for dinner or do something in the evening and you would encourage that but then as I'm sure a couple beers and a few hours went on you would start texting me and I am I have gotten better but in you know we're talking 20 years ago um I wasn't so great about checking my cell phone and um I would kind of lose track of time And so it would just be like, this would be this frustration for you because I wasn't behaving the way that you wanted me to. I wasn't back in time. I wasn't like calling you off to the side as I snuck to the bathroom to say, oh, we're still having fun or whatever. And so I would come home and I, you know, it took me a few times, but I would come home and then I would be depleted and all of the joy was completely erased like the moment I walked in the door. Oh, yeah. And that even kind of carried through to our daughter in some ways. Put stress with, on her. Put stress on her. Like if things needed, plans needed to change and she would go and have fun and then, um, you know, it was like, well, you should have done this. You should, you know. So then the mean- I got to the point that I just stopped doing those sort of things. And in the meantime, I was in an adult men's soccer league and the boys and I would go for beers afterwards and I would stay out till whenever I wanted to and you never checked up on me and... 
you know, I, there there was no like it wasn't mutual. There wasn't it wasn't like, you know, I needed to keep track of you and you needed to keep track of me. It was very very one sided. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I needed to give you that space, and it didn't bother me that you were out. I think that that's part of it. I also got the sense that it, to some degree it was relief when I was out, and you didn't so much care. Well, but then there was always that you're coming home, and it would be late, and I was getting up and going to work that next morning for our bakery. So it was early. So there was a lot of stress on those nights for me just because I didn't know. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. There was, because you weren't like sneaking in all the time trying to be nice. If something had happened, you wanted to share with me or. Well, okay. So that hits the other point that uh, Esther Perel makes. So let's, let's talk about the two components that she says are needs for, um, to have a, intimate desire-filled relationship uh she says there needs to be trust and safety but there also needs to be adventure and excitement so in my active addiction there's no trust and safety when i'm home you don't know what my drinking is going to do to my mood sometimes jovial sometimes i'd get stressed sometimes i'd be uh quick to snap if something went bad so you're walking on eggshells your nervous system is dysregulated because you don't know what you're going to get from your drinking husband so there is no safety, there is no trust. And then there's no release, there's no adventure and excitement when you're out out in the wild uh, seeking other connections and try, just trying to have fun with some other friends. Uh, so both of those things that are necessary, according to Esther Perel, for a healthy, intimate relationship, the safety and the adventure, both of those things I was crushing. Yeah. And then, so is it any wonder why, like you said, when I was in active addiction or in early sobriety, there was no room for you to even think about intimacy and the importance of intimacy in our relationship. It just wasn't on the radar. Yeah. There was no desire to connect further with you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so important. Now that our relationship is much healthier and there is trust... I can see the importance. That's why when when I saw Esther Perel say this, I was like, oh my God, that is so important because that's what we've experienced. We trust each other and then we can go out and have friendships and adventures and do things with other, other people and um, have fun without each other, without the way it was for so long. Even before I had addiction, I was jealous and I was all over you. Where are you? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And it's stifling and yeah. crushes intimacy. So now we're in a different space. And, you know, a lot of times um, when you go out, I am legitimately, I'm always, I'm excited for you when you come home and you've got stories to tell or you got a smile on your face. It's just a totally different perspective to come at this from. And part of it, I think, is from what we've learned, but a huge part of it is from just getting the alcohol out of there. Because there's no question, addiction is one thing, but the alcohol made me jealous, you know, even before addiction, even when I would just drink a little or yeah. I would start to drink. It just, it does something to my brain and I know that I'm not alone. Yeah. I mean, even on the night before our wedding, we were supposed to be in our college town and doing our own thing with our own group of people and you truck, you tracked me down. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, total red flags from the beginning of the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so that's our answer to our listener question. Let's dive into the book, Dr. Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are. She starts the book, Sherry, with some anatomy lessons. And I think the anatomy lessons are really important. I'm not going to talk about everything she talks about in the anatomy section, But parts of it are really important. Right from the introduction, before even the first chapter, she talks about the fact that only 30% of women reliably orgasm through penile vaginal intercourse. So what we traditionally think of as sex, penetration. Only 30% of women can reliably orgasm that way. And, you know, I've learned from other sources, other research that I've done, other things that I've read, that for that 30% who can reliably um, orgasm from penetration, it's because of the location of their vaginal opening 
it's very close to the internal structures of the clitoris. So even it, look, the point is, this is all about the clitoris when it comes to pleasure and orgasm for women, uh, clitoral stimulation, whether it's, um, you know, manual stimulation of the external structure of the clitoris or the internal structures of the clitoris are being uh, stimulated by the penis during intercourse. It's all about the clitoris. That's one of the big points that Dr. Emily makes. Mm-hmm. You don't have much in the way of feedback on that one. You want to just keep oh, going? You can keep going. We do I, have a lot to cover, yeah. so yeah. You, you don't have to. Didn't know I needed to respond. I to just just for our listeners that have listened to us have these conversations about intimacy before, Sherry is grinning and maybe even blushing a little bit. No, but... I, I'm thinking of the word in high school, all the boys used to say the word clit all the time and I'm thinking now I'm laughing like oh that's why they were saying it to all the girls they were hoping to find one because they probably still haven't found one (laughs) that's a huge that's that's why Dr. Emily opens the book with a discussion of anatomy the expectation that we have that we're adults and we understand sexual anatomy is pretty much wrong honestly I was um, a sophomore in high school and then I was explained you know and it wasn't like the other C word. It wasn't supposed to be negative. Right. And they're like, you know, a clitoris. And I'm like, I didn't even know that I had one. Well, let me tell you what a clitoris so. is, Sherry. A clitoris is a well, tiny I know penis. Now, but... No, it's a tiny <laughs> penis. Or you could say that a penis is a big clitoris. But the point is that Dr. Emily makes is, and I call her Dr. Emily instead of Dr. Nagoski because I feel very close to her, even though she won't come on the podcast. Um, but you've read the book and I read the book lots of stuff and and just really like it's just uh, been on our book I took notes I mean I've got like this is it's on my bedside table this it's is just like been on Bible. our bedside table yeah she's this, in our bedroom <laughs> it is definitely the the Bible to me um, but anyway so back to my little joke which is not a joke the clitoris is a tiny penis or the penis is a big clitoris because they are made from the same fetal tissue basically. We all start out the same way, and then some of us become boys, and some of us become girls, and um, that determines how things grow from there. But both the penis and the clitoris have tons of nerve endings. This is the, the, the arousal piece of our sexual anatomy, and they are the same, basically. And that brings me to the kind of cornerstone part or point that Dr. Nagoski makes at the beginning of the book that we have all the same parts. They're just organized differently and they're all normal. And she's explaining this to talk about the similarities between male and female anatomy, but she's also explaining this because she, you know, this book was written, the target audience is women and she really, you know, again, foundational for her in her teachings is that the differences in female parts, um, they're all, they might be organized differently, might look a little differently, but they're all normal. And so she talks about the damage that's been done by, for instance, pornography, where all the female parts, they're, they're pink and they're shaved and they're all tucked in. And so if you're... Uh, vulva doesn't look like that you could get self-conscious you could think something's wrong with you you could you know be embarrassed by that it could it could make it harder for you to have intimate relationships it could hit the brakes we're going to talk about what the brakes are here in a minute Mm -hmm. but it could make um you know having a healthy intimate sexual life difficult because all of the examples that you've seen Or like I said, they're shaved and they're pinked and they're tucked in and they look perfect. Um, Dr. Nagoski's point is there is no perfect or better said, everything is perfect. Um, Doesn't matter what your stuff looks like. It's all the same parts organized differently and it's all normal. And she comes back to that point over and over again. Yeah. Which is why I'm kind of hitting it kind of hard. Yeah. Yeah. Anything more or just some yes? Well, I just, you know, also just another pornography because then there's the Photoshop and the editing and you know, I mean, even on sports illustrated, there's, you know, work being done on the photograph (laughs) of, of the super swimsuit model or the superstar athlete. They, they, you know, that, yeah, that just is 
Yeah, that, that whole part of the publication industry is is sad. Mm-hmm. And it, it causes, you know, uh, it causes issues for people when they compare and contrast with their own bodies. And it's a serious mental health concern. So I'm right there with you, Sherry. Um, there's an acknowledgement toward the beginning of the book by Dr. Emily about the fact that the findings in the book, the assertions that she makes, it's very heteronormative. She writes about cisgender women and cisgender men in heterosexual relationships. And the reason that she does that isn't out of ignorance. It isn't because she doesn't care about um, people with, you know, that, that have different sexual orientations or different sex, uh, gender identities. It's because this is where the research is. So she can comfortably make assertions and talk about the findings in research because it exists that is heteronormative. And she makes the point that she believes that a lot of what she talks about applies in transgender situations, um, in uh, bisexual situations, in uh, gay and lesbian situations. But she just can't, uh, you know, uh, claim that to be true because that's not where the research is. And I want to make that point as well. You know, you and I are obviously, for anyone who's listened to us for any period of time, I'm a cisgender man and you're a cisgender female and we have a heterosexual monogamous marriage. And so that's the point that we come from. The people that we work with tend to fall into that same category. But we by no means want to um, act ignorant. We by no means want to exclude exclude anyone. We want to be as inclusive as humanly possible. We just don't have the research or the personal experience to extend the things that we talk about beyond our relationship. And I, you know, I think one of our goals should be to find people to bring on the podcast who do, who have different experiences and to broaden the relationship. And that's a commitment I want to make. I want to, I want to be as inclusive as humanly possible, especially when we talk about some of these sex and intimacy topics and how they relate to addiction. So that's something that we'll need to work on. Um, but that's so when we say man, when we say woman, we're coming at it from a heteronormative perspective, and we just want our listeners to understand. Uh, I think it's also important when we continue to talk about the findings in this book that we think of sex as more than just the act of penile vaginal intercourse. The topics that Dr. Emily so deftly covers are about desire, they're about arousal. They're about physical connection. They're about orgasm. They are uh, much more inclusive of the cycle of sex and intimacy than just thinking about penetration. And I want to make the point that for men, for me, and for a lot of men, you know, desire is relatively constant, or at least it's very easy to come by. Arousal is easy to come by. And um, so... For us, you know, this book is just as important to men, I would argue, as it is for women. It's targeted toward women. It's written, you know, directly to women. But as a man reading it, I got so much out of it because I started to understand that desire and arousal, that's not easy. That's not constant for you. That's not constant for a lot of women. And so just like I made the kind of um, caveat about that this is a heteronormative book and that the discussion that we're having is heteronormative. There's also some gender components. And we, and we, this is not the first time on this podcast that we've tried to carefully address gender components. And I love the way Dr. Emily addresses it in the book. She says that there's more variation within the genders than between the genders. So if you talk about topics like desire, arousal, and orgasm, you will find within cisgender women some that are have a really high libido, they think about sex a lot, they orgasm easily. You'll have some for whom um, orgasm is difficult, they never think about sex, they would just rather stuff it down and avoid it altogether. And that's a really wide range. And that same range exists among men. So the, the span 
within the gender is bigger than the differences between the genders. However, she does say, and I agree with her, you know, basically to paraphrase, stereotypes exist for a reason. There's a reason why we think of men as typically having higher libidos, thinking about sex, having desire be easier, and women having more trouble with that. And so all of the discussion that we're going to have about this when we talk about gender components, I just want it to be clear that we recognize that um, that we're stereotyping a little bit. There is data to back up the stereotyping, but there's also data to back up that there's a full range. And if so, if you're a woman listening to this and you have a high libido, I don't don't want you to think yeah. there's anything wrong with you. If you're a man who never thinks about sex, you shouldn't think there's anything wrong with you. You're in the range. Yeah, it's a spectrum. It is. There's a bit of a bell curve to this. So, um, and again, this is apl- applicable because understanding what we're going to talk about next, which is this concept of the accelerator and the brakes and context is so important so that you understand your where you're coming from yourself, your own internalization of these topics. But it's also important so that you understand what your partner's up against. I, I've learned more from Dr. Emily because of what she's taught me about your body as opposed to what she's taught me about my body and my, you know, kind of um, arousal desire system because, oh, things are making sense now. I get why you behave the way you do. And, and my, you know, the, the things that I was trying to do for many years to change the way you viewed sex, those were never going to work. It was actually just making things worse. Right. So, again, super important, not only that we look at this from how it impacts us, but how it impacts our partners. So let's talk about desire, arousal, and orgasm. Um, Dr. Emily uses... The dual control model, where she talks about the accelerator and the brakes for desire and arousal. And so think about how a car operates. When we're pressing the accelerator, we're go, go, go. When we're pressing the brakes, we're coming to a halt. So apply that kind of analogy to these topics of desire, arousal, and orgasm. Um, I want to give some examples of things that typically press the accelerator. And then I want to ask you, Sherry about your own personal accelerator. Things like love, emotional bonding, trust. I read a study recently that was about the most recent sexual experiences of teenagers and what was the most important, comparing pleasure, you know, basically orgasm, right, to other components of the experience. And it was fascinating. Even among teenagers, the most important component was things like uh, creating a bond in the relationship, things like trust, as opposed to just, you know, to be crass, did I get off or not? And so when we talk about the accelerator, the things that make somebody feel desire or feel arousal, that love, that emotional bond, that trust that's at the top of the list for many, many people. Uh, but there are also more, you know, kind of typically things that we would think about when we think about stimulation, sexual stimulation. There are things like you know, erotic messages, romantic stuff, uh, visual cues, touch. Those all play in for a lot of people. Certainly those all play in for me when it comes to accelerators. And then so when we talk about what taps the accelerator, what pushes down on um, creating a, a desire and arousal, for me, you know, it's a lot of things. It's kind of, you know, if the wind... <laughs> is blowing from any direction. I wish we had had a soundtrack of wind. Yeah. Then that was good. It been like, boop. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take much doesn't... for me. That's typical, I think. But it can be, you know, it, it, when it relates directly to you, my partner, it can be an outfit that you're wearing. It can be something, sometimes you say something that I find to be particularly intelligent or intellectual. Sometimes you stand up to somebody in the outside world in a way that I didn't expect. And that's a turn on. I told you when we very first met, my favorite characteristic of you was how spunky you are and you didn't take shit from anybody. So that is attractive to me. Um, You know, there's the pheromone thing is real. There are times of the month when I'm more attracted to you than others Mm -hmm. because something's, you're giving off something and I, I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, you know, on a um, conscious level, I can't sense it, but 
something's telling me something's going on. Yeah. So pretty much anything um, makes makes me feel desire and attraction. But I know this is much more challenging for you. So let's talk about your accelerators. Does your mm. car ever move unless it's pointed downhill and you <laughs> let off the brake? I don't know. I think that that's been harder for me. And I feel un- it's unfortunate for you that um, I feel like you have a tightrope that you have to walk. Um, and and I feel like everything has to be aligned and the moon has, you know. like Tightrope, you know, I love that. Like, I feel like you're on a tightrope and either side is, is a cliff. And those are my quote-unquote breaks. I feel like it's been harder for me to understand what my accelerators are. But if I were to go back and think about some of the times when we've had good sexual experiences has been when I've seen you kind of be relaxed and be yourself, not be arrogant, but yet confident and quick witted and, um, entertaining in a way, but not too much. So, I mean, it's like, it can't be too much because that was a big turnoff when you were drinking. Like you would just go over the top. Yeah. So that's why I feel like a tightrope for you. And I'm um, unfortunately, sorry, but there's this this window when you can be confident and entertaining and quick-witted and smart, you know, that I find you very attractive, like when we're around a group of people. And then, you know, I don't want to say it's because I'm comparing you to others, but it's just you are a very social person, so that's kind of your element. But it's very easy for me to go in your eyes and I think... It's very In anyone's yeah. eyes, it's very easy for me to go from confident, ooh, attractive, like the confidence, to arrogant, ugh, over stop bloviating. Or over the top and just trying to make like make things funny when it didn't necessarily get to be, you know, or didn't need to be that funny. I think you know? the tightrope analogy is brilliant, Sherry, honestly, because that's that's what it feels like from my perspective. I know, you know, I have to be careful when I compliment you because... If it seems contrived or if it's too much, you reject it, yeah. a compliment. If, if you know, it's okay for me to be attracted to your physical body, but if it's too much, then I'm just using you or I, or you're worried that I'm just going to be using Or my you. worth is only in my yes. appearance and I don't want that. I want to be considered smart and, you know. So the tightrope is, so, yeah. is really good. So, so to... You know, your your accelerator has a fine line, and there's brakes on both sides of it. So let's talk about what the brakes mean when we talk about desire, arousal, orgasm. Brakes are when, you know, some things that can push on the brakes, I should say, are when you or any person, really, these are generalities, then we'll talk about your specifics, but when a person is not feeling good about their own body, when they have concern for their reputation, you know, you and I are married and we're monogamous, but when you're in adolescence or when you're younger or when you're single, I guess it doesn't matter how old you are, and you are considering sexual activity with somebody, there's that concern, you know, especially when you're younger, right? Oh, am, am I going to look like a slut or am I going to look like a prude, right? So again, mm-hmm. tightrope. Um, which side of the tightrope do you want to be on? So concern about your reputation uh, can hit the brakes. Um, fear about uh, sexually transmitted infections. Fear about unwanted pregnancy are things that can push the brakes. Um, feeling used versus desired. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, negative mood about your partner. This is so important. You know, I can go along and you and I can argue and we can disagree and we can, um, you know, in in dealing with the kids, we can go different directions And then we can hop in bed and I am ready to go. But for you, all of this contextual stuff, uh, that just slams on the brakes for you. You have have no interest to be intimate with someone that you have had disagreements with throughout the day. And so that's, this is super important for me to understand and learn. Um, Or even just situations that we're not arguing about the kids, but they were having bad things going on. Things weren't going their way necessarily. Oh, I don't remember exactly. Oh, yeah. But, uh, I, like, That's enough as for you. the mom, I was, like, wearing their feelings. Yeah. And I wasn't, like, trying to 
glom onto them and be helicopter mom and tell them how to feel and all that. It just, you know, also trying to be letting them have their own life was total break. And I remember you and I were laying in bed and you were like, something, because we talk about sex every night, like what are, what we're interested in. And I'm like, I'm just too emotionally spent and worried about what's going on there. I can't. Yeah. And because if you hadn't read this book and understood this more, then you would have been like, ugh, what does she care? I mean, this isn't anything about us. It's about the kids. So compartmentalize, Sherry, block it out, have the sex, enjoy your orgasm, and let's go on. But you knew that that would be hard for me to release those emotions. Yeah. And you were uh, understanding. Absolutely. I, yeah, I've learned so much, again, about my partner um, that is applicable and helpful for how I approach the relationship. That's a great example. Stress is another one. This this one's interesting. Stress or anxiety, that can go either direction. That can hit the brakes for many people. But for something, according to Dr. Emily, for something between 10 and 20% of us, stress actually hits the accelerator. And I would say that I experience stress both ways. Yeah. There are times when I want the release. I want the, you know, I want to feel that physical connection. And so I want more sex when I'm stressed. Or there are times when I'm like just too stressed to even think about it. And I know that's probably more typical for you, right? You're just too stressed to think about it. Yeah. 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 A lack of trust for, for your partner is another big break pusher. Um, I want to get into some alcoholic specific examples because that's what this podcast is about. That's the work that you and I do is working with folks working on their uh, recovering their alcoholic relationships. Beer breath rambling and being rude, being not a safe place, being just moody. You know, like we said, you never know what you're going to get when your alcoholic starts drinking. Um, And, you know, using your partner's body as opposed to desiring your partner's body. These are all things that can push hard on the brakes if you are someone who is married to or in long-term relationship with an alcoholic. I, I I don't think we need to dwell on what hits the brakes for you because I think it's pretty much all of these things on this list. <laughs> it's it's all of it. But I think that we've talked in our podcast before about a lot of those things that were the breaks, like you mentioned, the beer breath, moodiness, temperament, instability. And I just mentioned earlier, like excessive boisterness, boisterous, boisterousness, boisterousness. Yeah. You know, like when we were out in a group in a social setting. Yeah. And the arrogance. For me, I think, like I said, extreme stress can do it. And um, if I'm afraid, it'll get me fired. Those are kind of, that's kind of the only thing that would hit my, like. Would I fire like, you even as if we my talk husband? About, is well, you know, I, <laughs> no, well, I know. I coach I know. high school soccer. So yes. from that, yeah. I mean, I get it. when we talk about, um, you know, some people get really aroused. Their accelerator gets pushed by when having sex in public. Yeah. When there's a. A challenge or you, a yeah. voyeur Yeah, there's something desire. that's... You can count me in that category. That yeah. would be exciting to me. Unless I thought I might get fired. Like, no mile high club for you, right? Uh, well, when's when's our next trip? I would... <laughs> oh, right. Well, that could totally... Yeah, Yeah, but getting, getting kicked off the Public? plane or arrested... Yeah, I wouldn't want to get arrested. You're right. That would yeah. hit the brakes. Yeah. But it takes a lot to hit the brakes. So it's so important that we understand this about each other. Um... There are two components to context, Dr. Emily teaches us. This is another just super important lesson. Um, circumstances and brain state. So we can be in a situation that you know you are feeling desire and arousal, and it goes really well for us from an intimate standpoint. We can be in that exact same situation two weeks later, and because of what's going on internally, like the example you gave about the kids are having a hard time, we can be in that same erotic or romantic situation, and because your brain's in a different place, the brakes are getting slammed on. So I think it's important for, especially for those of us with a, a higher libido, um, who have more time spent on the accelerator than the brakes, to, um, to understand you can make it perfect again, just like it was the last time. And if there's something going on internally, it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, I think that leads to you shouldn't try to recreate the moments and just enjoy the memory. Yeah, I I talked about a lesson from Esther Perel earlier. I want to kind of end this podcast episode on a quote from Esther Perel. She says that foreplay, it, referring I think specifically to 
to people for whom the breaks are an issue. Um, foreplay starts at the end of the previous orgasm. I've thought about it, but I've never heard it put that way. That is such an impactful quote because I had to understand that what happens in the bedroom has very little to do with what happens in the bedroom. What happens in the bedroom has to do with all the stuff that leads up, not just that day, but for days, for weeks even. Um, how I'm treating you, how we're getting along, how are your interactions with the kids going, how are your interactions going at work. And so all of this context stuff, all of the talk about what hits the brakes and what hits the accelerator is so important. And so this concept that foreplay starts at the end of the previous orgasm, it's just, it's a continuous thing. For me, it's not. You know, wind blows and I'm ready to go. But for my partner, it's a continuous thing. And that's understanding that makes it so that I can manage it and participate effectively. So just so, so important. Yeah, understanding that it's not just your partner's problem is a big deal. I've talked in the past a lot about the rejection inherent in consent. What I mean by that just briefly is there are many times, whether I was in active addiction or past active addiction, where you would consent to sexual activity, but you didn't really want it. Mm -hmm. Very, very common in relationships, alcoholism or not. When I could tell that you weren't there emotionally, intimately, it hurt me, even when you would agree. So one of the big takeaways for me from this book and from our experience is that I need to be looking for enthusiastic consent, enthusiastic desire, arousal. I need, you know, your orgasm is important to me. Not because it's not just about your pleasure and my pleasure. It's not even just about sexual satisfaction, which can come from things like pleasure and intimacy. It's also about relationship satisfaction. So when you have enthusiastic consent, when you're into it, that makes you feel good about the relationship. It makes me feel good about the relationship as well. All, as well. And it all drives down to self-esteem. If I feel good about the relationship and you feel good about the relationship, I'm going to feel good about myself. And you're going to feel good about yourself. And as we've talked about many times on this podcast, there's nothing more important to recovery from an alcoholic situation, either as the alcoholic or as the loved one, than self-esteem. We operate as strong, independent people, then the relationship gets better. So this stuff is not just, you know, I'm not just here to talk about pornography or sex. I'm here to talk about how this ties in to recovery and even prevention, which we can talk about on another episode. But Sherry, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you um, talking about sex and intimacy and our good friend, Dr. Emily, on this podcast today. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.